And just the idea that I'm not okay every single moment or every day. And we don't think of it that way. We act on it that way. I was doing a group therapy one time when I asked one person in particular, how are they doing? And she said, are you asking me how I'm feeling or how I'm doing? Because she says, I'm doing great. And she was talking about her recovery from her eating disorder at the time. She says, I'm doing great. And I feel like shit. And there are just times where you are going to do that. And that's how you move through it so that you're not feeling like shit. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. I'll ask uh, you, Alan, how are you doing? And, and uh... Well, I, I'm doing great. I think since since we're in this context of, of a conference for the International Conference Ooh. for Secular AA, you know, why don't we qualify ourselves a little bit and share a little bit of our stories? Uh, my journey in recovery started back in 1971. So this last summer, I celebrated 51 years uh, on my journey. Um, yeah, it's a, it's amazing. When I think of five decades in recovery, it's it's incredible. I was very fortunate. I'm I was in Vietnam. I went in the Marine Corps first of all as a as a solution to my alcoholism. By the way, it didn't work. <laughs> I I came out of boot camp and I still I was still drinking and having blackouts and all that stuff. Um, I tell everybody that that the experience I had when I was drinking was, you know, I, I, I got exposed to alcohol when I was 12 years old. It was shortly after the loss of my father. And um, I wasn't dealing with anything. I had all these ideas about who I should be. I had anxiety, depression, insecurity, all these things. And, and um, so I'm like 12 years old, I'm hanging out behind the school, the elementary school that I was going to, and one of the cool guys from the park in front of the school came back and he had an old style, and it was a hot summer day in Chicago, and you know how the, 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 the water is glistening on the can and stuff, and he hands me the can, he says, would you like, would you like to have a beer? Now, I initially took that beer because I wanted to be cool. That's what it was about. You know, I wanted to fit into that group, right? But something happened to me that was much more powerful than being cool. Now, and that's a big deal because I think cool is really cool. But this was bigger than cool. And what it was, the minute I took that drink, I felt an emotional freedom. Yeah. That emotional freedom that I felt hooked me. I mean, it was the only time up until that point in my life, that I was okay with who I was. See, I never felt that. Never felt okay with who I was. And so now, if one was going to make me feel that good, guess what? (laughs) More would be better. And I was sprinting headlong into my alcoholism and into my addiction. I became a teenage alcoholic, blackout blackout drinking at the age of 12, dropped out of high school because it interfered with my drinking, essentially never went to high school. 
ended up um, at 17 years old, deciding I have to do something. My life's going nowhere. Something has to change. I decided I'd become one of the few, the proud, the Marines. So I signed up for the Marine Corps at 17 years old. My mother had to sign the papers to send me. Remember, my father passed away. She couldn't wait to sign that paper. She didn't know what to do with me. She had no idea on how to deal with what my 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 alcoholism. I was out of control, completely out of control. So I go in the Marine Corps. Obviously, there's no drinking in boot camp. That was my first experience with detox. Come out of boot camp and every Marines and infantryman. So we go to advanced infantry training regiment and then we get liberty. And I got to go into Oceanside on the weekend. What do you think happened? My first liberty. Same thing. I drank until I blacked out. Same things going on. I volunteered to go to Vietnam at 18. So in 1970, I was over in Vietnam. And Vietnam, they did this dirty trick on us. They served us 3.2 beer. I don't know if you guys have ever had 3.2 beer, but it did not do anything for me. Water. It was, <laughs> it was terrible. So we had plenty of other drugs on our base. I was in an artillery unit. I started experimenting with drugs or the alcohol. Same thing happened. Emotional freedom. Right. I was OK with myself. So now I'm using alcohol and other drugs, but mostly in Vietnam, other drugs come back from Vietnam. Now my alcoholism goes into a full blown raging addiction. Make a long story short. My last duty stations in Hawaii. Great place. Right. Hawaii. Wonderful. Exotic Hawaii. I'm at home. I, I grew up in Chicago. I was partying with my friends. We were listening to Hendrix, The Doors. I mean, it was a wonderful time, right? Woodstock had happened, all that stuff, cool stuff. So they're sending me off to my last duty station. And they load up my pockets with all these drugs. So I get to LAX to change planes to go to Hawaii. And they were searching everybody before you boarded the plane. Because back in 1971, there was all these international hijackings and they moved security to the gate. Some of you are shaking your head. You remember that. Some of you say in 1971, I wasn't even born then. So I panic, right? I'm standing out there going, oh my God, I got all this stuff. Now I've been partying for 30 days. So I didn't have all eight cylinders in my head firing. And today I thank God for that because I devised a plan. See, I had these drugs. I knew I had to get rid of them. If I wasn't as you know, spaced out as I was from all the party. And I would have gone in the bathroom and flushed them down the toilet, right? That would be the best way to get rid of them. But in the airport back in the 70s, you could smoke. And they had these ashtrays with sand in them. Do you guys see what my mind was thinking? Go up to the ashtray, move a little sand aside, reach in my pocket, drop some drugs in there, cover it up, move over to the next one. So I did that ritual about four times, get the drugs out of my pocket. I think, God, Burger, you did it again. You avoided that silver bullet. So now you're Scott, you're, you know, home free, you know, so I go ahead and get on board the plane. And what was happening is two LAX police officers were watching me go through this ritual and they were following me on, on you know, uncovering and collecting all these drugs I'm burying. So I go through the line. They say, hey, Marine, come on over here with us. I go, oh, I'm in trouble, right? They put the drugs on the table. 
And I go, I'm going to jail. This is it, you know. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to jail. And then what's going to happen? I'm going to go back to the Marine Corps. They're going to court-martial me. They're going to bust me. And they're going to send me out with a bad conduct discharge. There was a zero tolerance for drug problems in the Marine Corps at that point. So I sat down with the guy and we start chatting. And it turned out that one of the police officers was an MP in Da Nang at the same place and the same time I was. Now, how does that happen? Call it serendipity, synchronicity, you know, whatever it is. But because we warmed up to each other, he says, you know, Berger, I'm going to give you a break here. I'm not going to arrest you here, but I am going to call your commanding officer. Now, I wasn't sure at the time he would did me a favor because that meant the MPs are going to be waiting for me when I get off the plane and they're going to arrest me and throw my, you know, my butt in the brig. So I'm on the plane, I'm dreading deplaning, I'm fantasizing, you guys know about the, you know, how we awfulize, right? I start projecting all of these things and I'm going to off the plane, they're going to throw me on the ground, handcuff me, make this big scene and, you know, throw me in the back of the, of the of their van and take me off to the break. Well, I get to Hawaii and there's no MPs. I go, okay, so they're going to wait for me at my unit. When I get to my unit, that's where they are. They're waiting for me there. Well, I get to my unit. They're not there. I'm sure this guy called, right? So what's going to happen? So I say, you know what? It's best. Let me be proactive here. So I went into first sergeant's office the next day and I said, hey, top, I got a drug problem. He starts shuffling papers on his desk. I'm thinking, did he hear me? I just told this guy I got a drug problem. He should be calling the, the you know, the MPs, have them come arrest me, take me off to the brig. He pulls a piece of paper up. He says, Berger, you are one lucky Marine. Is this guy talking? Is this guy smoking dope? What's he talking about? Right? What's happening here? The Commandant of the Marine Corps signed into orders that you guys that came back from Vietnam that had problems were not going to be prosecuted under the Code of Military Justice and discharged with a bad conduct discharge. Berger, you're going to rehab. I was sent to the other end of the base to this rehab program that started three days before I showed up in Hawaii. Amazing, right? Now, they had no idea what they were doing. You know, it's so funny. I just, I, I'm, I'm applying for some disability benefits through the VA and I was able to get a hold of my medical record. And here's this interview with this psychiatrist back in 71. And I'm telling him about how the program, they don't know what they're doing, but I think I could really fix this program. <laughs> I mean, the arrogance, right? I, I was wet behind my ears. I'm going to be able to fix the program. They didn't know what they were doing, but they did reach out to the community, the AA community outside the base. Now, in 1971, there was no Narcotics Anonymous on the island. NA did not exist yet. But there was a bunch of young people that followed this a magical woman around named Flowbird. She was a 50-year-old hippie, and she was a Pied Piper for young people. And there was about 25 young people living with her on the North Shore that were living this way of life. And so they invited one of the young people to come to speak to us on Tuesday nights. It was called the recovery rap session. So this hippie walks in Tuesday night. His name's Tom McCall, and he doesn't mind me breaking his anonymity. He's got a ponytail, blonde hair, hair pulled back in a ponytail. He's got his, you know, wire rim glasses on. I mean, he was a real hippie. Talk like a hippie, dress like a hippie, Hawaiian print shirt, khaki pants, 
worn out flip-flops. And here's about 20 of us, Marine Corps combat Vietnam vets dressed in our combat fatigues. I mean, what a juxtaposition of dress and energy, huh? It's really was weird. I, I didn't, I was skeptical. What does this guy have to say to me? He was out protesting the war. I'm putting my ass on the line, fighting for our country. Five minutes into his share, I was in a trance. I was blown away. I had never experienced in my whole life another person being that open, honest, authentic, and vulnerable as Tom was that night. He was talking and sharing things that I felt that I didn't want you to know about. I was ashamed of some of these things that I felt. And he was okay being Tom. He was okay being Tom. He was free from the bondage of, him, of his self. That's, I, that's what I was always looking for, right? You remember with my story about being back at the school when I drank that beer. I always had that emotional freedom. Well, here I'm witnessing a man that's achieved this without using alcohol or any other drugs. There was a part of me, and I couldn't have said this to you at the time, but there was a part of me that felt if I could achieve that state of mind in my life, I think I could make this life work. I think I would be able to figure out a way of how to exist and to be okay. Well, that, that inspired me. As much as I got inspired when I picked up that drink, I was even more inspired because now this was real. And I knew that this was what I always wanted. I went up to him and says, well, how do I, how do I, how do I get there, man? How, how do I achieve that? You know, and instead of him handing me a hit of acid, he says, stick close and, and, and I'll show you how. And I did. Took me to meetings every night. He just gave me everything that he could give me to start me and to propel me on my path to recovery. That was my first experience with emotional sobriety. And it was a lasting experience because I realized that's what drove me to drink and use is that freedom. Now, it just so happens, as you're going to learn today in this, in this time that we have with you, that the 12 steps if they are practiced in our daily lives, the goal, the explicit goal that Bill Wilson stated in the 12 and 12 is that if we practice these principles in our daily lives, that we and those about us begin to find emotional sobriety. That's the purpose of working the program is to experience this freedom. And once we experience this freedom, we're unshakable in many ways. Doesn't mean we don't get knocked off balance. But once we get this, no matter what happens in our life, we find a way to be okay. I tell everyone that my mentality before discovering emotional sobriety was an I'm okay if mentality. It was so conditional and contingent on things being a certain way to be okay. So I'm okay if you like me. I'm okay if I'm okay if I was just obsessed with that. Emotional sobriety has helped me find a way to be okay, even if 
I'm okay even if things don't turn out the way that I want them to or the way I think they're supposed to or et cetera, et cetera. And this is the fourth legacy that Bill gave us. And what we're going to do today as part of our podcast is to go through Bill's letter with you and share some of our, you know, reflections, musings about it. And then at the end, hopefully we'll have some time to open it up and you guys can share what, what you got out of it as well. So that's, uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. You began with wanting, wanting to pick up the, the beer because it was, it was, because you'd be cool. And I want you to know it ends, the story ends with, you're really cool. You know, and, and uh, I, I love that part. And, I, and it's, it's a new, de- emotional sobriety in some ways is a, is a whole new definition for being cool, I think, uh, which, which I like. It, and it's, I come, I, just, to, just to go back and, and give you a little bit of my, of, of, of my entrance into this stuff, it's quite, you know, Alan and I are very, we have lots and lots in common, but we're very different. It's like, I just realized today the one the one thing that I have done educationally that is that surpasses you, Alan, is I went to high school. That was your Vietnam. <laughs> oh yeah, I know that line. That's right. It's like, but uh, no, I, I grew I grew up in West Texas. I grew up in the little town of Plainview, Texas, between Amarillo and, and Lubbock, West Texas, and where uh, uh, so I'll just say sur- surrounded by by Church of Christ and Baptist and and but I grew up Presbyterian, which was which was a good thing because because you know we pretty much just grew up worshiping uh, the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, we just wanted to get out of church in time for that. So I I didn't uh, you know I uh, uh, I did I was talking to somebody earlier today who who had come to to the to secular to secular meetings in AA uh, because of because of some more extreme religious things they had early in their life. Um, I was surrounded by that, had a lot of that stuff in there, but, but really, really kind of uh, lucked out in terms of being Presbyterian, which I sometimes say is all things in moderation. It's, um, and I didn't, I, and, and so my, my, uh, I, I came into my adult life and it's kind of, kind of just in a neutral, neutral frame with this. And, um, and I, but the one thing I identify with Alan on absolutely is alcohol made me alcohol early on gave me what I was looking for. I was better. I was, you know, I could, I was, you know, I felt like it felt like it set me free. It felt like I could be somebody who was okay. And it was, it was, it was the one thing that I, that I needed. And it's like, and in many ways, and I tell people this all the time, I tell clients a lot of times, it's like, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not alcohol's fault. I mean, you know, and the truth, the truth is I get, got some experiences, uh, you know, early on of, of, of discovering parts of myself through alcohol that I go like, okay, I'm still great, grateful for that. But of course, what happens after a while is that, you know, the, the, the good begins to be challenged by the negative stuff that's happening and, and like, like most people are probably with us today uh eventually i had to realize that that the that the cons were going to outweigh the the pros it's um but as far as 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 far as where we come one of the reasons i really love the idea that we have we we can we we can find these places of sec of secular uh recovery is is because secular recovery, to me, what it really is, the word I use is it's inclusive. It's not exclusive. That's, that's, the only, that's the only objection I have with people's belief systems of anything, whether that be political, religious, or, or even AA. We've, we've, all know fund, we've all know fundamentalist AA people. It's like we got those guys. But it's, it's like 
I love I love any group we could get together that that where we we are just simply open minded. We're open. We, we're willing to share. I have a little. I have these little one liners, uh, therapeutic one liners uh, that, that I that I put out there sometimes. And one of them says, "I respect your opinion. I trust my judgment." You know, and I and and that's that's what this what what I think recovery needs to be based on. It's like I, I respecting your opinion just simply means I know you're a separate person and I can take in what you're saying without having to be defensive. And then I can take it on. I can I can. You know, if, if somebody tells me something that I think, well, I think that's right. And I'm going to I'm going to I believe that now I'm going to take that. But a lot of times, you know, it's 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 all kind of out of card. I can I can I can I can begin to develop my own belief system. Having I, I got so I got I got sober. I just quickly say I got I've been sober. I have not I have been what I since I'm a great procrastinator, I always say that. I'm glad to have found that there's some some benefits to procrastination, and I have been able to successfully procrastinate my my uh, next drink for a little over 36 years now. So, so that's that's you know don't don't have any intention of picking one up today. So we're we're probably in good shape with that. Um, but uh, I I got I got sober I got sober because my wife pointed out to me that. Uh, that if I didn't get sober, uh, uh, that that I was going to be moving out of our house. Uh, she she um, she and I were both still drinking when drinking alcoholics when we got together. She is one of those I always say you know a, 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 rare, a rare alcoholic that that intervened on herself, went to AA, got sober. So so she was sober six months before she said anything to me. And, and so I, you know, I had to go underground with that. And, and she made it really clear that, uh, that I had a choice about, about, about that. And I had a choice about my relationship. I had a choice about my career. I had a choice about whether I wanted to continue to live in fear. Cause there was as many of you, as many people I can identify with by the time that happened, it's like, it was no, it was not news to me that I, that I had a problem. It was not news to me that I was an alcoholic. I, I knew that I was an alcoholic. I just, you know, I, that knowing that didn't, doesn't stop the denial system. The denial, the denial of alcoholism is, is like a good, is like a good attorney that is, that is there to defend, not to keep me drunk all the time or keep anybody drunk all the time. The, the denial system of, of alcoholism is like a good attorney. It's there to protect our right to drink, you know, I mean, my, my, you know, that guy in my head would, would even have me go long periods of time. I remember at one time I went, uh, I went, I went uh, two weeks, I think it was without having a drop to alcohol. And I, and I told a therapist of mine, cause I was so proud of myself. And then she said, and um, even with my aging memory, I remember this sentence very clearly. She said this sentence that as, a, as an English major, I got to say, it was a, it's still is a way, way too long sentence. I didn't like the sentence at all. Uh, but he, what she said is, you know, Tom, the only people who stop drinking in order to prove they're not alcoholics so they can go back to drinking are alcoholics. And I remember my thought, which was, bitch. You know, it's like, didn't like that at all. Didn't like it, had to sit with it. Eventually it, it took a while, but it, it sunk in. And so what I realized was, no, yeah, my, I needed to be willing. When I heard the, the first, first time, or one of the first times I heard the phrase in program, willing to go to any lengths, you know, I think I made some connection in there that I realized that if I think about my alcoholism as a separate being from me or a separate aspect of me or the disease is separate from me, then my alcoholism was no doubt willing to go to any lengths to, to keep me and to keep me 
to buy buying into its bullshit. So if I was going to get sober, I needed to be willing to, go to, to to match that with willingness to go to any links to open my mind to to other ways of thinking and, and seeing. And, and you know, and again, as as I'm in I'm in good company to know that 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 was a bumpy and messy messy path for a while. It was not. It was a, a long long time before I I felt really wonderful about it. But um, but um, I today, as I sit here talking to everybody, being a part of this group, I am I am eternally grateful uh, to uh, for, for everything about that, including and in, in beginning with my wife uh, insisting that uh, that I uh, you know that I make a choice. She didn't insist that I choose her. She made it. She insisted that I make a choice, and I did make that choice. And and Alan and I often talk about. Uh, recovery in terms of, of choice we 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 call it we we call it the recovery decision and we can we talk about that in some, some other places in our in our podcast and we'll let, maybe, maybe talk about it a little bit more today but um so that that that's how i got to be there i, I was when i got sober i was an alcohol i was an alcohol i was a tr- uh, the, had helped develop it was like the second alcohol and drug treatment program i had helped to develop from the ground up i was the director clinical director of the alcohol and drug treatments program so i definitely i was i now i look back at it and say i I treated by day and drank by night and of course tried to convince myself that, you know, just those alcoholics will drive you to drink. You know, it's, it's like, but, uh, but ultimately, you know, you know, this distinguish, you know, talk about difficulty with a, a over, over hyper, uh, uh, hyper defense system. It's like, I had to keep, you know, uh, uh, convincing myself that I was different from the people that I was treating. And it's like, it became harder and harder and harder. And I was, uh, you know, so I, 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 I heard somebody say that the way I got into the, the, the program was through the back door. Uh, it's, it's like the way I, the way I think about it sometimes is, is, um, if there's such a thing as reincarnation, I must've been such a sick puppy for so long that, that, uh, the, the God, the committee, whatever, said why don't we just make him a therapist and then maybe he'll maybe he's doing that all the time he'll catch on so uh, so i'm also I'll, if that's the case i'm also grateful for that but what i what i would uh, i'll wrap this up by just saying what i'm most grateful for uh, today is the fact that I have this, uh, this, uh, uh, I have my sobriety. I have this affiliation with, with Alan Berger and with, with our producer, Patrick Newman, and that we put this a podcast together for emotional sobriety and that we do this, uh, we do our Thursday night emotional sobriety support group that Alan, uh, uh has hosted for years now. We, we began with the COVID, uh, shutdown and, uh, and it just it just never went away. Uh, the uh, a little bit like COVID, I guess. But it's uh, it's like the, the but the program but the support program is going strong. So, and I have learned so much. And I'll, I'm going to uh, turn this back over to Alan with the, and talking about Bill's letter because going. I've been in the program a long time. It's saved my ass for sure. It's it, it's there's such wisdom here and going through these 12 with the, with the 12 steps of, of recovery and then expanding beyond that because i i've never been I, I never really got i never was somebody who got caught up too much on the god thing so so i just i i took what my sponsor told me from the very beginning of this stuff and he, he just said he said there's 12 steps of recovery one of them mentions alcohol uh 
and he, and, and he says, and he mentions alcohol. It's the first part. He says the rest of them are just are just about how to live a better life. And what I've learned is that that then I I've never had to make a distinction between between you know um, the God thing or the secular thing because I've always just looked at these things as tools, and I look at any other thing as as any other part of the process of of self help growth, personal, uh, personal growth as just tools. So what I love about what Alan has really pulled off with, with this whole process of bringing, bringing uh, emotional sobriety to the forefront is he's taken what Bill was talking about from early, early on. I mean, Bill was literally talking about emotional sobriety, writing about emotional sobriety. I think, Alan, I think you were like maybe one year old or something like that when he started that. Is that right? Yeah, I was born in 52 and he started to write about it in 1950. Yeah, it's like it's like so you're too, you're a little toddler going around there but it's it's like the you know the next frontier. I just I've always said like I think somewhere Bill handed a baton to you somehow and you've done such a beautiful job of doing that and getting us, you know, it's and it's inclusive, you know, we we start you and I have begun with 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 our uh, our affiliation with twelve step, but we go beyond that. And that's what I love about this, and I you know, and just the introduction to 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 this community, the secular community, and to Joe C in particular, you know, my I'm, I'm coming to absolutely lo- definitely admire, but also coming to love and enjoy just be, being with, uh, is such a beautiful thing. So that's I mean, I just I can just be very effusive about that, but but it's you know ultimately it's it's about discovering what works yeah and the fact that it's that getting sober is lifting the hood of the car you know it's absolutely essential you got to do it you got to get the hood propped up so you can get to the engine but but ultimately it's about getting under the hood for all of us so that we can work with with our with our um it's it's we recover from things so that we can recover who are, who we really are. So it's two, two ways of recovery. I recover from what's toxic so that I can recover as in regain, reconnect, or even connect for the very first time with, with my, with my authentic self. Patrick, I don't want to exclude you from this. Do you want to weigh in for a few minutes before we start with Bill's yeah. in terms of yeah. sharing your journey real quick? Just briefly. Um, I, uh, I'm new to all this. Um, I took my cake for four years, uh, clean and sober, uh, a couple months ago. And, um, I just a couple things about emotional sobriety. Um, I started using when I was, um, 17, I think 16 or 17. And, uh, once getting sober, I'm confronted pretty regularly by all the things that in the intervening time would drive me to use. And I think like I've got a lot of emotional development to do and I've got to develop new frameworks for how to um, for how to survive and thrive, um, you know, without the uh, without the uh, the active addiction model that I've been uh, living under for so much time. And I think like where, I you know, emotional sobriety puts the ball in my court always, which I think is really important. It's. Um, it moves me away from kind of like an attitude where I'm dependent on people to be a certain way or the universe to give me things um, in order to get out from under whatever the thing is that's bothering me. So I've always got something to do. And I think that um, the 
humility is being an essence of, you know, recovery. I think like emotional sobriety principles put me in touch with, uh, with humility and, you know, always kind of digging deeper to find like a, a, the better, the best version of myself to bring to whatever the situation is that I'm facing. And also like in working with Alan uh, early on in my recovery, I, I was just very inspired by how like I, I had an, I, I had a, there's a version of myself that I aspire to where I'm not just a sick person um, <laughs> with this disease and identifying always as kind of like the worst, the worst part of myself that I've been living in for so many years that like there was, um, that there was, that, 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 that was a time in my life. And there's a new time that I'm living into, um, where I can, uh, I can take risks and I can do the new relationship or I could do the job interview, or I can, you know, I can fall on my ass and not worry that I'm going to revert to my earlier scumbag self because that's who I really am inside. It's like, no, you know, there's, there's, there's more to do and there's uh, the, the capacity for growth is limitless. Um, and so that's what I, you know, find inspiring about, you know, this work that I've been doing and, you know, trying to learn how to do um, as I move forward. And I, uh, one last thing is I had about like a year and a half or something of sobriety under my belt when COVID happened. And it really sucked like it did for so many of us because uh, I, you know, I, I wasn't doing the in-person as much, you know, I I'm kind of like some of my fundamental like early fellowship split up a little bit, but uh, the good thing was that we moved more into um, these kinds of like awesome kind of more virtual spaces, things like podcasting. Um, and there's a whole new kind of like constellation of people that I'm now connected with. Um, and I'm doing, I feel like great work with uh, you know, establishing new connections. Nice to meet you guys. Let's go ahead and jump into this letter. So this letter was actually written in 1956. It was published in the 1958 Grapevine under the title of Emotional Sobriety, The Next Frontier. The letter was originally a response to a gentleman in California who wrote to the general service office in New York and said, look, I'm depressed and I have been in the fellowship for a number of years and I am wondering if the 12 steps, can it all help me with my depression? Now, if any of you have, have looked into Bill's life and read his biographies, that you know that he struggled with depression his entire life. And Bill was someone who really sought some answers to his dilemmas. And he really tried to figure out, well, what was, what was going on that kept creating this depression that he experienced? And he had a lot of different inputs, right? There were a lot of different spiritual directors at the time that were giving him input. I often say he was in informal therapy with Dr. Harry Tebow, the first psychiatrist that befriended Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I also think he was a student and he read a lot of psychological books written by people like Adler and Karen Horney and the other very, very prominent psychotherapists in the 1950s. And so in this letter, I think Bill does an incredible job at giving us a, first of all, a synthesis of everything he's learned in a synopsis of it. I consider 
this letter to be Bill's fourth legacy in the program, giving us emotional sobriety. Now, you'll see if you go back and you read the 12 and 12 from this lens, if you put this emotional sobriety lens, the whole 12 and 12 is about emotional sobriety because he realized at one point that that is exactly, if we practice the steps, we develop a practice of emotional sobriety. So without any more to say about that, let's jump in and listen to the letter. I think many oldsters who have put our booze cure to severe but successful tests still find that they often lack emotional sobriety. Perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say, humility, in our relations with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. So, Tom, in terms of the process of this, do you mind if I start with my reactions and then you can jump in after I'm done? Is that okay? Um, that's great. Okay. So this is the second time that I've seen in the literature, in Bill's writings, the use of this term emotional sobriety. I am quite certain that it was something that was talked about a lot when he attended meetings at the time. But it appeared first in the 12 and 12, in when he's discussing step 12 and talking about the effect of working the steps and saying that it's to help us find emotional sobriety. This is the second place that I've seen it written about. Now, he hoped at this point that this movement, it would spearhead another major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance. We'll get into talking about defining, you know, this emotional sobriety a little bit more in a meeting. But I, I just want to say a few things about what I think happened that we didn't focus on these issues that you're going to see that Bill really, really understood and was able to articulate very well as we get into this letter. But I think what happened at a critical point, I think everybody took what uh, John, Dr. John Weldon called a spiritual bypass to dealing with a lot of their issues. Now, it, it was very common when I was newly sober for people to turn it over to God. Now, I'm not criticizing that because it actually worked for a lot of people. I think it worked for maybe other reasons. I don't believe in some deity up there that's, you know, controlling our lives and solving our problems for us. I, I think that's that's our job, not somebody else's. You know, I love the saying that Dr. Nathaniel Brandon has, no one's coming. It's time for us to show up for ourselves. But I think what happened is when people turn things over, they lived in the pause that they found that space that Tom was talking about earlier between the stimulus and response. So many people like Dr. Victor Frankl, Rollo May talk about that. If you live in that space, in that gap between, that's where you're going to find your power. That's where you're going to find emotional sobriety, that you're going to find, you know, the ability to make choices that are going to help you recover your balance. If you're knocked off balance or recover your emotional center of gravity. So I think that's what happened. Everybody started turning things over and nobody started to dig down and asking themselves, well, look, if I'm upset, what's going on with me? You see, Bill said in the 12 and 12 at one point that it's a spiritual axiom that every time I am upset, and, and he, he said that that's unconditional. He said, no matter the cause, 
there is something wrong with me. I like to think there's something off with me, and I'll, I'll we'll get into the difference between that later. So if I take that approach when I am struggling and start to say, I bring this, and Tom and I talk about this a lot, one of the things that helps so much in recovery is to keep your curiosity very close to you is to be curious about what's going on here. How come I, I'm having such a strong reaction to this instead of the mindset in terms of what's wrong with you that you made me feel this way? You see, you're going to find out that that kind of mentality, blaming other people for what you feel, is a very, very undifferentiated or immature kind of consciousness. So let's get into that. He talks about real maturity and balance, and then he goes on to define it. He talks about his humility. Humility, just think about it as a low focus on yourself, as the ability to, you know, own your mistakes, recognize your limitations, your gaps in knowledge, those things. He says it's real maturity and balance. We say humility in our relation with ourself, with our fellows, and with God. I like to add here and with life. Now, what does it mean to have real maturity? Well, we're going to define maturity for you today as the transcendence of an environmental support to self-support. I'll say that again. This is Fritz Perl's definition of maturity. It's the transcendence of environmental support to self-support. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need our environment. Right now, each you each of us is dependent on the oxygen in the room that we're that we're you know that we're sitting in right now to to exist. But it's our job to inhale and exhale. That's our participation. It's not just going to happen for us. Now, this development, this movement from environmental support to self-support is 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 hardwired inside of you. You see, you know, when people say, well, God, you don't believe in God, Dr. Berger, what do you believe in? I says, I believe in the force, like in Star Wars, that there's an incredible force in this universe. The force inside of me moves me towards what I can be. Just like an acorn can become an oak tree. Nobody tells that acorn how to become an oak tree. It has to have certain conditions to realize and to mature into what it can be. But when it grows into that oak tree, it will be a unique oak tree, even though it shares a lot of commonalities with other oak trees. So we could talk about that stuff later. Balance in our life. The balance I think he's referring to here is our ability to balance the amount of togetherness in our life with the amount of separateness. Another way of saying it, to balance the amount of we-ness we have with our I-ness, to balance the connection or union with our individually individuality or integrity. Now, in relation to ourselves, what does this mean? Well, it means I have to examine my expectations. And you're going to see that. You're going to see that our expectations are quite problematic. They're skewed. And they're not skewed in a, in, a, in a good direction for us. I have to manage my expectations with you, with what I think life is supposed to be or should be. And if you believe in God, even what you think God is going to be for you. You see, you can have a toxic relationship with God if you believe in it. 
So this is, to me, a call for us to grow ourselves. That's what Bill is talking about, that the program is a people grower. It grows people. It helps us develop what we can be, because each and every one of us, we're arrested in our development, and that's why we're here. We're not pathological. We just got stuck. <laughs> and this is a, the way to think about this is going to help us unstick ourselves. So I'll turn it over to you, Tom. Well, th thank you. It's, I, you know, I think about the um, later in the letter, and you will get to that part of the letter, but, but he refers to the, at the root, at the root of this, this is from Bill Wilson also, the, the, at the root of, of our disturbances is, is unhealthy dependence. And, um, and to me, what the very beginning of this letter does, it talks the dependence I look at is, and, and, this, and I can't help but do this also from partly from my own personal experience, because it's certainly a part of what I had to really face, which, which is basically my, 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 con my control addiction, you know, and control addiction is not, you know, a lot of times, it, 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 more people have that than, than, than you think. It's like, it's not, it's, it's, control addiction is not the same as power addiction. It's not, it's not trying to control people, not having to have power over other people. Control, con, con, control has, also has to do with feeling an, an absolute, maybe unconsciously, a need to know to be certain about what's going to happen. So I think two things that happen when we start to move toward maturity are we come to terms with, with the fact that, that we don't control a lot. That's, I, I, give, I offer something there in, in, in place of that to help, to help us feel better, which is we, we're not in control. And Alan, you, you, you allude to this part. We're not in control, but we are in charge of ourselves. And that's a, that's a really important distinction because, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's still up to me to make decisions, to move, to move in, in a, in a proper direction. It's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen for me, but we need to do that. And the uncertainty, I wrote, I wrote a book years ago called, called uh, embracing fear and what just spending time with the subject of fear. I don't even think it's, this, this concept is this idea is in the book. Cause I think I just came away from the subject with it, which is, as human beings, we fear uncertainty more than I think we fear anything. It's, it's like, it, it's, it's just, it, we, we will actually very often opt for a negative certainty than live in uncertainty. It's so, it's so scary for us. And so one, those two things that I do not, I am not in control of so many things. And it's not to say I'm not, I don't have any power because I do. I, and I'm in charge of using that power. And, but most importantly too, I, I can, this comes up in therapy with clients all the time. You know, what you're wanting to, what, what you're saying, to, what you don't mean to say, but what you're saying is I will be better once I understand how things are going to turn out. It's like, no, it's what Alan was saying earlier. It, it's like, you know, even if it's like, no, I'm going to be, I'm going to be okay regardless of how things turn out because I am in charge of this and I have a support system to support me through it. So anyway, those, those two things I would just want to point out at the beginning of this. Thanks, Tom. Mm -hmm. Those adolescent urges that so many of us have for top approval, perfect security, and perfect romance, urges quite appropriate to age 17, prove to be an impossible way of life when we are at age 47 or 57. So if you were asking yourself, well, what does Dr. Berger mean when he says environmental support? Well, Bill Wilson does such a great job at really capturing that. 
see for him that this need for top approval meaning that everybody's going to like me perfect security that things are just going to go my way all the time that i'm going to feel good all the time that everything is going to be what i want it to be perfect romance that my partner is going to 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 help you know complete me that they're going to give me everything that i never got when i was growing up that they're going to fulfill my individuation they're going to make me whole see he calls those mike they he says they're appropriate age 17 i think they're problematic then too by the way i think that these are some of these nonsense ideas that develop in our culture you know which is so focused on having and materialism i don't think they're appropriate 17 but he says well they might be appropriate age 17 but they proved to be an impossible way of life when we were at age 47 57 67 77 go on and on and on an impossible way of life well isn't that our dilemma that see this is the wonderful thing about what tom was saying a minute ago is many people can understand their powerlessness you know over their alcoholism or their addiction but understanding the second half of that first step you see that's what this is all about it doesn't mean that our life just became unmanageable because of our addiction it means that our life became unmanageable because of the trajectory that we were on in terms of of living our life and that's what bill is bringing to our awareness right here okay tag tom you're it keep going with with uh, whatever bills listen you got that one I have nothing All right, to add so let, let, let me go to the next slide. Since AA began, I've taken immense wallops in all those areas because of my failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually. My God, how painful it is to keep demanding the impossible and how very painful to discover finally that all along we had the cart before the horse. Then comes the final agony of seeing how awfully wrong we have been, but still finding ourselves unable to get off the emotional merry-go-round. See, so this was the insight he had. He saw that he was emotionally immature, that he had a failure to grow up, right? He did not know how to deal with life on life's terms is the way that we hear about it in the rooms all the time. See, and we're going to see that he really demanded that life should conform to his expectations instead of seeing himself as being challenged to cope with life as it was or as it is. And he goes on, how painful it is to keep demanding the impossible, right? That things are going to be what I want them to be. That's the impossible. And then how very painful to discover finally that all along we had the cart before the horse. My God, see, this is the realization. Not only am I powerless, but my God, the way that I have been living my life, you know, means that I've been heading for a train wreck all along. <laughs> and I've been in many of them. I mean, if we get honest with ourselves. See, that's what he came to realize. Now, talk about a lot of humility. This is a big pill for people to swallow. And I do think what happens over time as it's said in the big book, that more will be revealed. The longer you're around, and that's why Bill wrote this letter, remember, in 56, 
21 years into his recovery. In 1950, 15 years into his recovery, he wrote to 12 and 12 because he started to mature. He started to, what I say, only the best in us can see the worst in us. And as Bill started to develop some sense of self, some real self-esteem, authentic self-esteem that was based on who he was, not on everybody else's approval of him, when he developed that, he could start to see who he wasn't. And that's what we're seeing here. And I think it's such an important insight. And he says, we see it, but how do we get off this emotional merry-go-round? So he's not only going to help us understand the problem, but he's going to give us some ideas about what to do about it. This just jumps out at me. My God, how painful it is to keep demanding the impossible. You know, we, we most of us know sitting in rooms full of people talking about this stuff in support or just knowing people and stuff. Sometimes somebody will just say something that will just strike us. And we go like, oh, my God, that, that you know, I thought I was the only one that felt that. But but, it, you know, how painful it is to keep demanding the impossible. And it's like. And the most important part about that paragraph to me, Alan, is is the fact that it it, act, it actually introduces, in my way of thinking, the, the you know what addiction is. And I'm not talking about substance addiction. I'm talking about addiction is the best metaphor for the human condition. We can see it, and we still are not able to change it. Yeah, that that is where we that is yeah. that that that's I think the clinical term for that is that's freaky man it's like it, it's that's that's really hard to go and boy it can be so you know it's it, that's where for a lot of us discouragement gets a foot in the door yeah. and discouragement is a very deadly deadly uh, thing here in, in in this process because discouragement the, if I, if I want to personify discouragement if I'm if I'm the discouragement on your committee in your head then my job is to get you as quickly as I can to hopelessness. Because if I can get you to hopelessness, that means you'll stop trying. And uh, so beware of discouragement. And that's where a lot of it begins. When we realize, when we actually have the insight, we're smart enough to have the insight, but then we realize, oh my God, I'm still not able to either change it or I'm, I'm having really a hard time maintaining the change. Okay, great. Here we go. How to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result, and so into easy, happy, and good living. Well, that's not only the neurotic's problem, it's the problem of life itself for all of us who have got to the point of real willingness to hew to right principles in all of our affairs. Well, I, I love this part because what he talks about is that this isn't just understanding concepts. See, recovery is experiential, that we have to get it down here emotionally so it's available, so we can access it in terms of being able to cope with life and for the problems that life is going to set in front of us. So that's what he's talking about. How do we translate this? Well, you're going to see the way you do that is by getting doing some work on understanding what's going on with you and then, you know, finding how to respond to it in a way that opens you up to discover some new possibilities. I love to define recovery as the discovery of new possibilities in your life and emotional sobriety is, has, is it's a cornucopia of new possibilities. Even then, as we hew away, peace and joy may still elude us. 
That's the place so many AA oldsters have come to. And it's a hell of a spot, literally. How shall our unconscious, from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want? How to convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde becomes our main task. Well, so now we're starting to see some of the results of the work that Bill did. He, he developed a lot of insights into himself. He understood that in his unconscious existed some of these fears. Well, what are those fears? Well, I'm not going to be loved. I'm not going to be accepted. I'm not going to belong. Those fears comprise what Dr. Karen Horney called a basic anxiety. That basic anxiety then drives us. It creates compulsions and phony aspirations, meaning that we have to come up with a solution. And so what we decide, if I could just be like this, I'll be okay. We come up with this false self, this idealized self, that if I'm this way, then I'm going to be loved and accepted all the time. It's my search, you know, it's the answer to my search for glory. Hallelujah. So we now, instead of, you know, actualizing who we really are, we abandon ourselves for this idea of who we should be. That becomes that phony aspiration. That's why most of us feel like, my God, I hope nobody finds me out. They're going to see that I'm a phony. Most people I know feel that way because you're trying to be someone that you think you should be and not being who you are. Now, how can this be brought into line with what we actually believe, with who we actually are is the way I want to say it, know and want? How can we bring this into line with reality, the reality of who we are? In other words, how can we accept ourselves as we are and have that self-acceptance as a departure for our lives. I've recently come to believe that this can be achieved. I believe so because I begin to see many benighted ones, folks like you and me, commencing to get results. Last autumn, depression, having no really rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. I began to be scared that I was in for another long chronic spell. Considering the grief I've had with depressions, it wasn't a bright prospect. Well, I want to I want to comment on on both of those paragraphs. The the, the one I want to go back to the to the first one because two things come out of, of that one for me, which is which is first of all he refers to um, uh, how how to convince our dumb raging hidden Mister Hyde uh, to become our becomes our main task. It's like. Most of us have some version of that, some sense of, of, of that darker self or that part of us that I call them saboteurs or bullies. A lot of times in, I refer to them as inner bullies, but they're, they're, self, they're self-sabotaging parts. And, and one of the things that I find is that it's really important to understand that, first of all, our, our Mr. Hyde is not dumb. They're, they're, they're smart. And one of the reasons we need we need support is because they're, well, I don't know why that is, but those saboteurs in our head somehow seem to be smarter than we are if we go one-on-one with them. So I know that, that I am, you know, I am, uh, I, you know, there may not be today, but if I go one-on-one with my addiction or if I go one-on-one with my control addiction, if I go one-on-one with my depression, 
It's like eventually I will I will I will lose that battle. I know that you know that it is smarter and stronger than I am. That's not bad news. That's good news because it's about humility. I can say to Alan, Alan, you and I together are stronger and smarter than 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 my than my saboteurs. It's like the group, this whole group together, we are we are smarter and stronger. So we have so so I want to make that point that we're not gonna and we're not gonna convince Mr. Hyde of anything because we're Alan and I are all about is we're going to accept. We're gonna let we're gonna we're gonna bring it in. We don't have to like it. As a matter of fact, nobody here really has to work hard at accepting shit that they don't like. I mean, I mean that they like. They have it's, it's the stuff that we don't like. So we we have that. And um, and then I'd love this in the second paragraph that, that we just heard. That I mean, I I I I've, I'm, uh, I've, I have suffered and and do continue to, to ride the wave of my depression. I do have clinical depression. I'm treated for that medically as well as through therapy. It's it's. Uh, um, and I always appreciate people all the way back to Bill Wilson being able to describe some of that. And even just I can, you can hear the terror in him because any of any of you, I'm sure I'm not alone in this in this group who have experienced depression. It's like we have post-traumatic stress disorder when it comes to even the slightest symptom about depression. We can feel a sinking kind of thing and a part of us tenses up like, oh, my God, here it here it comes. He talks about that, you know, that 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 fear of of, of the, another long chronic spell. It's like the point I love about all this is that now we're talking about using these tools of, of, of 12 steps to help with this, this bigger picture, not just with my addiction, but with my depression, with my, with, with my ultimate well-being in this world. Thanks, Tom. Spaghetti okay? Spaghetti's fine. Good. I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to release depression? By the hour, I stared at the St. Francis prayer. It's better to comfort than to be comforted. Here was the formula, all right. But why didn't it work? So put a bookmark here. We're going to come back and talk about this at the end. It'll make a little more sense then. Suddenly, I realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence, almost absolute dependence on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things, according to my perfectionist dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when defeat came, so did my depression. So this is the moment that Bill realized what was under, underlying his reactivity. See, he realized, he called it his basic flaw. Here he describes it as dependence, almost absolute dependence. Later on, he'll talk about it as an emotional dependency. He was dependent on people or circumstances to supply him with self-esteem, emotional security, and everything else to make him feel good. You see, that level of environmental support is an impossible way of life. It turns us into what Tom talked about is we've got to try to control everyone and everything so it's the way, quote, it's supposed to be so that we feel okay. So it's like we lose, we lose a sense. And, and this is, I call it the big lie. 
we lose a sense that things have to, or we have this sense that things have to be this way for us to be okay. And we lose this uh, idea and this connection to, we have a remarkable ability to adapt and to adjust and to deal with situations. But this has totally dismissed that possibility. We've abandoned that idea. And so instead we put all this energy and demanding things are a certain way. So when something happens, we get so busy objecting to it and feeling sorry for ourselves, instead of standing back and saying, hey, what do I need to do to cope with this? Now, Bill, you know, he called it his perfectionist dreams and specifications. So when you have a false self, you are going to operate with black and white thinking. You're going to live a world of absolutes. So things must be like this to be okay. I must be like this to be okay. You must be like this to be okay. Life must be like this to be okay. And now I've got all these demands on how things are supposed to be. Those are my specifications. Now, he fought for them when things didn't go his way. He tried to convince other people that they should do it his way. And you know what? He built in the program that there's only one leader, a loving God as he may express himself in our group consciousness, right? It's very interesting. So people didn't go along. Even Lois started to say, you know, Bill, no, I'm not going to do that. And he didn't know what to do. All he could do was get depressed. He became deflated. He became defeated. He did not know how to let go of these demands that he has. That was his dilemma. Yes. And the problem is in the, in the phrase, I fought for them. It's the fighting. You see, the, the fighting is the flaw. It's like, that's what I learned. You know, I, 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 I came home one day and, and, and well into my recovery and found a book my wife was reading called How to Live with Control Freaks. It's like, <laughs> wow. It's like, you know, that's, you know, I was fighting. And, and right. you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to get there. You can't get there from here. You can't. What do they say? You can't get. Oh, you can't get there from here. Yeah, you can't do that. And and listen, not not everybody controls people overtly. There's a lot of covert controlling that goes on. Oh well, and and mine mine was always. I mean, and I sincerely would say it fell into. And again, it's not power over people. It's like it was about my fear. It was like like no, it was my thing. I said in therapy over and over again is I'm just trying to be helpful. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yep. There wasn't a chance of making the outgoing love of St. Francis a workable and joyous way of life until these fatal and almost absolute dependencies were cut away. Because I had over the years undergone a little spiritual development, the absolute quality of these frightful dependencies had never before been so starkly revealed. Yeah, well, it is. And this is what I said before, only the best in you can see the worst of you. And when you start to see these things, even though this isn't a good thing, it's not, you're not a bad person because you have them. Please listen to what I'm saying. This is a developmental issue. Everybody, we all start out environment dependent on our environment to be okay. And this is just about growing up. And it just means if we're stuck in a place, we're just stuck. It's not that we're bad people. Now, Bill realized, he says that I cannot love unconditionally or without strings attached unless I deal with my emotional dependence because then everything I do for you is going to have a string attached to it. I'll do this if you love me. 
I'll do this to get you to love me. See, it's always this thing. There's always some kind of attachment to our behavior. You see, when we start to develop a practice of emotional sobriety, you do what you do because you want to do it, not because it's going to get somebody to do something you want them to do. If you want to give somebody a gift or you want to do something nice for a person, you do it because you want to do something nice, not because, well, if I do this nice for you, hey, Tom, what are you going to do for me? It's your turn. You know, no, it's not. That's not the game we play. We let go of that. And that's what he's meaning is that as we mature in our consciousness, I call emotional sobriety a consciousness of freedom. As we mature towards that consciousness of freedom, Bill's going to use this phrase, we unhook people from our dependency. We unhook them from our claims and demands. We now start to have what Martin Buber called an I-to-thou relationship. I see you as another person, not someone that I'm trying to get something from, but just that I'm in relationship with you. That that's that's more another discussion another time, mm-hmm. but I, I think this is an important part that we've got to cut these things away. Reinforced by what grace I could secure in prayer, I found I had to exert every ounce of will and action to cut off these faulty emotional dependencies upon people, upon AA, indeed upon any act or circumstance whatsoever. Then could I be free to love as Francis did. Emotional and instinctual satisfactions I saw were really the extra dividends of having love, offering love, and expressing love appropriate to each relation of life. Now, a lot of people are surprised that Bill says here, I had to cut off these emotional dependencies on AA. They understand about cutting them off on people or attaching yourself to that things have to be a certain way for you to be okay. But AA? I mean, weren't we told that we're replacing one unhealthy dependence with a healthier dependence? The answer is no. You see, this is where Bill understood that the program is to help us learn how to stand on our own two feet. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need anyone. Like Tom said before, I need I need the support I get in my environment. It's helpful. But I'm responsible to be in relationship in a way to it that gets me what I need. Tom's not just going to figure out what I need. And if I'm in a bad place, I can sit here and say, God, I wish Tom would call me. I wish he would call me. I'd like to talk to him. Pick up the phone, Alan. Reach out to Tom. And, you know, most of the time he'll be available. And if he's not, then I reach out to someone else who is. You see, I don't need things to be a certain way to be okay. I have to be a certain way. And that's what Bill is emphasizing to us. Then he goes back to this thing about being free to love. You see, one of the incredibly exciting things about emotional sobriety is developing this experience of freedom in our life. You can have love, offer love, and express love appropriate to each relation of life and not get lost in it. You see, and that's what a lot of us don't know what to do, because if I am emotionally dependent on you, then what you do becomes too important to me. I make you too important, and then I lose myself. Yes. Amen. Plainly, I could not avail myself to God's love until I was able to offer it back to him by loving others as he would have me. And I couldn't possibly do that so long as I was victimized by false dependencies. 
for my dependencies meant demand, a demand for the possession and control of the people and the conditions surrounding me. While those words absolute dependence may look like a gimmick, they were the ones that helped to trigger my release into my present degree of stability and quietness of mind, qualities which I am now trying to consolidate by offering love to others, regardless of the return to me. I'm going to flip through the next few slides since we're getting close to the uh, end of our time with you guys, because I want you to hear this whole letter. This seems to be the primary healing circuit, an outgoing love of God's creation and his people by means of which we avail ourselves of his love for us. It's most clear that the real current can't flow until our paralyzing dependencies are broken and broken at depth. Only then can we possibly have a glimmer of what adult love really is. Adult love is union with the preservation of integrity. It's joining with another person, but not losing yourself. That's what he's talking about here. If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Let us, with God's help, continually surrender these hobbling demands. Then we can be set free to live and love. We may then be able to gain emotional sobriety. So here is the formula that Bill discovered, right? He says, if you want to understand what's, what is wrong with you, right? It's a spiritual axiom. Every time that we're upset or disturbed, there's something wrong with us. This is the answer. If you examine every disturbance you have, you're going to find at the root of it that you have an unhealthy dependence, that you want that situation to go a certain way because your sense of well-being depends on it. And that dependency then manifests itself as an expectation, which becomes a demand. Or really, first a demand that then becomes an expectation that then we present as an unenforceable rule. If you love me, you would do this. If you love me, you do that. If you love me, you wouldn't want to do anything without me. If you love me, you'd know what I want even before I ask you. I mean, all these other nonsense ideas that we have that we think that that's what love is. That's not love. That's taking hostages. Now, he says, that once we start to surrender these things, then we can be really set free to love and lo to live in love and to have a more mature, healthier relationships. Now, go back to when he said, it's better to comfort than to be comforted. Think of it this way. Bill is talking about it's better for us to learn how to lick our own wounds and soothe ourselves than demand somebody else make us feel okay. That's what he's talking about here. Of course, I haven't offered you a really new idea, only a gimmick that has started to unhook several of my own hexes at depth. Nowadays, my brain no longer races compulsively in either elation, grandiosity, or depression. I've been given a quiet place in bright sunshine. Having spent too many years and too, too much time uh, using my introspection just to beat the holy motherfucking crap out of myself uh, is that the, the spirit of this letter, the spirit of this kind of thinking, not just this, but, but the, the, this whole thinking of, of this is based 
the way I, I just jotted it down so I wanted to get it as concisely as I could. Based on investigation, a pursuit of the truth within ourselves, and fo mostly for the purpose of problem solving. If you listen to, I, the more I listen to the, Bill's letter, read through that letter, and he's working on so problem solving. And it's like he's being in charge of his own problem solving. He's working on it. He's looking to do things. What is it I can change within myself? It's the serenity prayer. We can't change a lot, but what we can change, what can we do to make a difference in our own lives? And, and to go all the way back to the beginning, is the, the other thing I think he makes the point is, is that I believe this is really important in recovery of all sorts. And it is, is we have to let go of the idea that happiness, you know, and having a wonderful time and, and things being easy. It's not, it's not the point. The point, the point is the pursuit of our own integrity. The point is, is being the best version of ourselves every day when we get up. It's like, there's a lot of happiness that's connected to that, but it's like, that's not what it's about. Does that make sense, Patrick? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm glad you included the part, uh, the carrot that a lot of happiness does come with that. <laughs> oh, because, I don't, yeah. it's, it, <laughs> it's just it's, a roundabout it's, way of getting it, there. It's that what is the ironic twist? You know, when you stop pursuing something, what happens? Well, it shows up on your doorstep. It's like, it's like, you know, who knows how, how that works, but it's like, it's, it's the, but the selfish pursuit of it and just the idea that I'm not okay every single moment or every day. And we don't think of it that way. We, we act on it that way. I was doing a group therapy one time when I asked one person in particular, how are they doing? And she said, are you asking me how I'm feeling or how I'm doing? Because she says, I'm doing great. And she was talking about her recovery from her eating disorder at the time. She says, I'm doing great. And I feel like shit. You know? And there are just times where you are going to do that. And that's how you move through it so that you're not feeling like shit. We hope that you guys have gotten excited about emotional sobriety and that you, uh, Patrick, will you post in the chat the info for the Thursday night meeting? Yep, it's in the chat right now. That's great. So if you guys want to come and join us on Thursday nights, we are currently looking and examining how the 12 steps help increase uh, what we call a, 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 an authentic and humble self-esteem. We are so glad you joined us today, and we uh, hope you're walking away with a little more than you, you showed up with. Tinge your life, tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with. Then with glass in hand and children on one knee. Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me it ain't a crime to be a human never be ashamed to be yourself rest assured that whatever you're doing will entertain me like nobody else so here's to us my old friends until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again Glass in hand and children on me. Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me.